open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Modern laser vision correction procedures are so sophisticated that sometimes performing surgery feels like pushing a magic button. While surgeon's skill plays a big role in superior outcomes, laser vision correction has become incredibly refined and automated, but it wasn't always that way. This year marks the 30th anniversary of laser vision correction. To help celebrate this important landmark, I thought who better to speak to than the fearless, talented surgeon who brought it to us in the first place. At that point, my cornea fellow said, I can't stand this, it's too depressing, I'm leaving, and she left the project. And my research coordinator said, this is too depressing, I can't stand it, I'm leaving. <laughs> so all in one week, uh, these bad things were happening, but we had one of our many, many, many conference calls, and we decided, you know, maybe the problem is that these ablations aren't smooth. That's Dr. Marguerite McDonald. For those of you who don't know, Marguerite was the first surgeon in the world to perform PRK. In this episode, Marguerite walks us through her own personal journey with myopia, her early days in a retinoblastoma clinic, and her relentless efforts to introduce a disruptive surgical procedure. Coming up on Off the Grid. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Welcome to a very special edition of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And I'm just so pleased to have Dr. Marguerite McDonald uh, with us today. And we're going to be talking about uh, the very first eczema laser procedure that she performed uh, just over 30 years ago, the first in the world. Uh, Marguerite is well-known and well-loved by all of her colleagues. She's a clinical professor of ophthalmology at NYU and Tulane and a cataract, cornea, and refractive surgeon at Ophthalmic Consultants of Long Island, where she practices the majority of her time at Lindbrook, New York. Marguerite, um, I am just so thrilled to have you on the podcast because... Your story, um, for those who don't know, is so interesting. And as I've gotten to know you, um, even a little bit tonight, uh, as we've been talking, I'm so excited for you to share your story, not only about how you got started in refractive surgery, but I actually want to back up a little bit and really talk about your experience as a myopic patient starting in childhood, because I think it puts such a different spin on what refractive surgery means to you and what it can mean to our patients. So with that little uh, preamble, Marguerite, give us a little bit of a taste for what myopia was like for you as a child. Well, I didn't know I was myopic. I thought everybody saw the world the way I did. I was already minus eight at age five. I was later to find out. And, you know, squinting doesn't help all that much. And I sort of got through life by smell. I could smell my aunt coming in the front door because I knew what perfume she wore. Um, I would run up to my mom and hug her. And while my face was buried in her dress, I'd say, oh, mom's going to be the pink blob today. So I would look at this pink blob and talk to her. So, But I really thought everybody was just like that. And um, so one day, my mother and her best friend pile their kids into a station wagon and go to this new thing called a strip mall. And um, they said, all these shops are right next to each other. Isn't that marvelous? So there was a playground across the street. And they said, you guys play there while we shop. So I go running across the lawn. 
and the lawn was a green blob and there was a brown blob and I thought those were trees. So I go running full tilt and all of a sudden I'm underwater. It was a pond covered with scum and um, all of a sudden my legs are trapped under some lumber and I'm not coming up. And uh, so I was as stunned to be underwater as <laughs> I would be now. Right. And um, every the little kids who were with me, my friends were screaming. And a 12-year-old boy went by, who had an Eagle Scout, who had just finished a training and how to resuscitate people. So he dove in, extricated my legs, brought me up, and did CPR. So all these screams brought the parents out of the strip mall. The, my mother and her friend came running over and... I'm covered with mud and wrapped in a blanket and everybody's still screaming. And she said, Marguerite, you dove into that lake. I said, what lake? I didn't see a lake. So she brought me that day, still wrapped in the blanket to this optometrist's office. It was next to my father. My father was an orthopedic surgeon and this was the office next door. So he's refracting away and refracting away. And um, I, he turned to my mother and he said, she's so incredibly myopic. She'll be blind when she grows up. And I started to cry and he said, shut up. And uh, so he quickly goes back, makes a pair of glasses in his lab, you know, potchkeys a little pair together in a tiny frame. And he comes back and he puts it on my face. And I look straight ahead. The first thing I saw was my mother's face. I'd seen her eye, I'd seen her nose and her lip, uh, but I'd never seen her whole face all at once. And, you know, I thought she was beautiful. Now, everybody thinks their mother is beautiful. Mine really was. She was a stand-in for Audrey Hepburn. She was a, a fashion model. So I'm looking at this astonishing face, and her voice is coming out of this amazing face. And then I turned, and I looked up out the window. I was still in the exam chair. And I saw all – I used to find these leaves on the ground, and I'd hold them up to my nose and stare at them. And there they all were together, way up high. It was a tree. <laughs> So I was so stunned at what the world looked like uh, that I tied the glasses on my face and I would not let anyone take them off for six weeks. My mother had to try to wash around them. And finally she said, Marguerite, if we put them on your nightstand, they will be there in the morning. <laughs> so I let her take them off. So I wore these thick glasses and I was, you know, thrilled to death to have them. And I had a backup pair and a backup pair in, because I knew I was, I was lost without them. So there was a, a rule or a law in Illinois at that time. I lived in Chicago that you had to be 16 to get contact lenses. So I'm back in the same optometrist's office uh, when I was 16 on my birthday and I got gigantic polymethyl methacrylate contact lenses and they were awful. They were painful, but I loved them because I could finally get those glasses off. So I go screaming out of the office over to my best friend's home, knock on her door. She was one of eight children. Her older brother opens the door and I'd known him forever. And he looks down at me and says, Marguerite, is that you? I said, yes, I just got contacts. And he said, do you want to go to the movies this Friday? And I thought, contact lenses are the key to social success. <laughs> yes, indeed. But someday we're all going to be able to see without wearing these painful things. So that really stuck with me. Um, it was a major, uh, the, the whole thing you know, from age five to 16 was uh, very motivating, you might say. You know, it, it is, um, I think this part of the story, which actually I'm just learning as you're telling me this, it puts the center of the why 
uh, so clearly in focus, no pun intended, as to why you would want to pursue ophthalmology, but even more so pursue refractive surgery for your patients because you realized at a very tangible level how important clear vision is, not only for your safety and your health, but also for, like you said, for social success, for actually achieving the things that you you want out of life. I assume it it was that very um, tangible sense of, of what vision means that spurred you on into ophthalmology, but Walk me through that. So your father's a, uh, an orthopedic surgeon. You've had this dramatic experience as a high myope. When did you decide to, A, go into uh, becoming a physician, when did you decide to be a doctor, and then when did ophthalmology get on the radar for you as a, as a possible specialty choice? Oh, I'd, I'd be glad to tell you one last funny anecdote. Sure. Um, back from age five, as I'm, as I'm sitting there with my new pair of glasses on, my mother looked at me and said, Marguerite, we've been letting you cross the street for a year by yourself. This terrifies me. How have you been doing it? And I said, like everybody else, Mom, I stand on the curb and I listen for cars. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so anyway, so I I could see that my dad loved what he did as an orthopedic surgeon. He would come home every day and tell us stories. He was also the director of the emergency room at the hospital where he practiced. And so there were all these exciting stories every day. And I thought about being an orthopedic surgeon, but I liked the idea of microsurgery. And um, and he had he and all of his friends had terrible varicose veins from standing all day, and um, I mean really terrible. And I said, you know, I want to. I like to operate, but I'm sitting down. <laughs> and at, you know, ophthalmologists have been doing seated surgery for a long time. Plus, there was the the connection with my own personal vision issues. So in medical school, I decided ophthalmology is for me, and I did a rotation in the very famous Algernon Reese uh, retinoblastoma clinic, which was staffed at that time by the chief of service, Bob, Dr. Bob Ellsworth. And there were all these young parents. Of course, retinoblastoma is uh, a terrible cancer of children, so the parents are young, so they would come from all over. They would fly in from out of state and out of the country. And a lot of times Dr. Ellsworth would say, you know, I can't tell if your baby has Coates disease or retinoblastoma and it's bilateral and we've got to take these eyes out. I could be wrong. There's no way to tell, but if we wait to see what happens, your baby will die of cancer if it's retinoblastoma. If I take out the eyes and I'm wrong, they have Coates disease, they will have lost their vision, but they'll still be alive. These terrible gambles and these young parents with no money sobbing. And I was there when he, many times when he told people, we took the baby's eyes out and the good news is it's not cancer, but now they've got a blind child for life. It was like descending into Hieronymus Bosch's vision of hell. So I said, we have to somehow figure this out before we take these babies' eyes out. So um, I, I discovered that by reading that retinoblastoma eludes a lot of LDH. And I, they had just discovered that LDH has isoenzymes. And I thought, I wonder if there's a pattern to the LDH isoenzymes. There are five of them. Maybe, you know, number one is high, number two is low. Maybe there's some way to compare 
regular the LDH and regular aqueous humor versus retinoblastoma. To make a long story short, there was. There was a very distinct isoenzyme pattern. And for many, many years, until uh, imaging became better, they took babies for uh, an examiner anesthesia, tapped their aqueous humor, and ran the isoenzyme pattern. And it, it was so gratifying because a whole lot of babies were able to keep their eyes. Uh, and I said to myself, you know, I love this, but I was always drawn to refractive surgery. And also, um, it, it was still so hard dealing with all those young parents. I thought, you know, not sure I want to go into pediatric ophthalmology. Um, I, I kept coming back to my love for refractive surgery. So when I when I ended up as a cornea fellow with uh, Herb Kaufman, I got immediately involved in epicaridophagia, and doctors of a certain age will remember this, the living contact lens, and uh, and with radial keratotomy and... Um, uh, Aaron Safar was the LSU perk surgeon in the injury-bearings perk study, but he had to leave LSU uh, shortly after becoming the perk surgeon. So I stepped in and became, at a very young age, uh, the only, the youngest perk surgeon and the only female perk surgeon. So I was into refractive surgery in, in a major way, um, and I read Steve Torkel's astonishing. Uh, 1983 uh, paper, where in the AJO, he described taking an industrial laser that had been used to make uh, computer chips in Silicon Valley and dragging it across some cadaver animal eyes. And he said, look, there's no thermal damage. Maybe we could use this for refractive surgery. And I was just galvanized by that. It was another aha moment, it sounds like. An aha moment, and because I had graduated from Columbia, and because Dr. Trokel had given me the aqueous humor samples that I needed for my retinoblastoma project when I was in medical school, I called him up. I said, hey, remember me? A few years ago, I was there as a medical student. We did research together. I know you don't have animals uh, up in Manhattan. I do. I'm down here in Louisiana, plenty of room, plenty of lab space, lots and lots of animals, a huge vivarium. Can we work together? And uh, the, the third leg of that stool was Dr. Charles Munderland, the brilliant PhD physicist in California. So um, from California to New York to Louisiana, we started working. And for years and years, first we shot just uh, at a whole lot of plastic. Then we shot at cadaver animal eyes, always changing everything, <laughs> the shot pattern, everything. So we finally got to the point where we could do animals. And we started with rabbits because they're inexpensive, even though they don't have a Bowman's layer. Uh, and the original clinical outcomes were dismal. <laughs> they developed huge hyperplastic scars. But this was when we were shooting at bunnies that were several feet away from the laser. And we were using a diaphragm. So we tried to immobilize them and sedate them as best we could, but they were a few feet away. And we used a diaphragm that opened or closed with a hand crank. So I would shoot for a few seconds, crank down the diaphragm, shoot for a few more seconds, crank down the diaphragm. And they got these terrible, terrible scars. At that point, my cornea fellow said, I can't stand this, it's too depressing, I'm leaving, and she left the project. 
And my research coordinator said, this is too depressing. I can't stand it. I'm leaving. (laughs) So all in one week, uh, these bad things were happening. But we had one of our many, many, many conference calls. And we decided, you know, maybe the problem is that these ablations aren't smooth. Now, this seems incredibly obvious in hindsight, Gary. Right. But But at the time, who was to say? Nobody knew anything. So we said, well, let's just try increasing the number of steps. So we went from five to 40 and we uh, automated it. And uh, Charles, of course, the brilliant physicist saw to that. And all of a sudden the rabbits started to look pretty good and they didn't get big, thick hyperplastic scars. Still, we had no fixation devices, no tracking, nothing. So we moved to monkeys and we're slowly plodding along, getting better, 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 increasing the number of steps we kept going higher, higher, 40. We had all these um, <laughs> really interesting fixation devices, but we were showing our data to the FDA. We'd fly in occasionally and show them animal data, and they'd tell us to go back and do more. And then one day, even though the results were getting really pretty good, and then one day we find um, Mrs. Alberta Cassidy, who was a patient uh, in the oculoplastic service at LSU. And she was a um, lower middle class 62 year old woman, a Caucasian woman with a massive orbital cancer wrapped around a 2020 uncorrected eye. And um, she was facing an exoneration. And the oculoplastics service told her, uh, your only chance of survival is with an exoneration. They described what that was. And they said, and it's not a high chance at that, but it's your only chance. And she said, I'll take it. And uh, they said, it will take to get you medically cleared, et cetera, get everything we need. It'll take just a few days. And she turned and said, if I'm going to lose my eye, would anybody like to do an experiment on it before I lose it? That was her. It was actually her who brought that up. No, we were numb with grief for her. We would never have suggested right. such a thing. So oculoplastics calls me and says, guess what? Guess what? We have this woman here. So I go, you know, barreling over and we talk to her and we contacted the FDA on an emergency basis. We said, this woman is about to have an exoneration. If we're going to get a chance to do the laser, we have to do it now. Do we have your permission They got it. They said yes. So there was no time to move the laser. It was still out at the Delta Primate Center in Covington, Louisiana. So we race her across this huge 28-mile bridge (laughs) to the other side. We take her out to the Primate Center, and she is rushed by all the monkey cages where they're shrieking and hissing and spitting at her. And we lay her down under the laser, and I had the honor of doing that surgery. And even though, so not only did we put her in discomfort, we didn't know that PRK was painful. We assumed it was because it's, you know, taking off the, the mother of all abrasions. But we didn't know. We hadn't done a human yet. So we put her in discomfort, and we gave her a 450, my, a minus 450 myopic ablation that she didn't need. So for her last few days, she couldn't see well out of that eye. But the, the and we photographed her every day. We measured her every day. And 11 days later, uh, we got the specimen. But we got exactly a four and a half diopter correction. And she healed beautifully with minimal subepithelial haze. And we sent it all to the FDA. And they were 
super impressed. And they said, well, okay, they were going to have us do monkeys for God knows how long. We might still be doing monkeys. Right. <laughs> and they said, well, okay, well, we'll let you move on to the blind eye study. So these are people with healthy corneas who are blind in one eye from, you know, devastating retinal detachments or whatever. But Mrs. Cassidy um, lost her battle. And um, just a few short months later, she died. But we were allowed to take the laser out of the Delta Primate Center, move it back across Lake Pontchartrain and put it at LSU. But the university officials were terrified that it was going to leak gas and kill everybody. So they made us put it in a trailer. So we were depressed that we were in a trailer and that we would have to march our patients into a trailer, but it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because we were right next to the LSU trash compactor. And the LSU trash compactor, when it was firing, would shake our trailer just a little tiny bit, and we got much smoother ablations than we deserved to get. (laughs) You got a blend zone from the trash compactor. We did. And we we actually did an analysis of our data, and we said, you know what? The people that were done on Monday and Tuesday did better than the people on Thursday and Friday. And then we finally put it together. It's the trash compactor. It's the super smoothness. So, um, yeah, it was. And we also insisted that the university let us name the trailer uh, after Alberta Cassidy, who had died. And they said, no, no, no. We only allow buildings and and facilities to be named after rich people who've given us a lot of money and we said she has given us everything yeah and so we just threw through a long loud fit and they finally let us do it so we have pictures of the team standing outside the trailer which which had a big sign on it the alberta h cassidy lsu lions eczema laser laboratory that is this story is uh I mean, it's, it's so poetic in so many ways. I'm sitting here thinking about the fact that your journey in ophthalmology started with something that was almost a personal tragedy. Um, then it came as a medical student where you were actually having to look at people, look at young parents who are dealing with a child who may have cancer. And then you were able to have a key insight into helping save um, the vision of young uh, babies who, who had Coates disease, as it turned out. And then so many years later, uh, a woman who was afflicted with a malignancy became a key in actually advancing a huge field. Do you ever just sit back sometimes and think about the poetry of all that, just, just the, the poetic justice of, of that whole story? It really is profound as I'm sitting here hearing this. Well, I think about how important serendipity is. Still, we were uh, clueless about exactly how smooth ablations had to be. We knew that we, when we went from five steps to 40 that we got better results. But, you know, serendipity all the way. Um, the, the guy on the oculoplastic service who had the presence of mind to call me and tell me about Mrs. Cassidy, he could have said, oh, no, dear, no, 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 you just really, you know, enjoy your last few days here. All the lucky breaks and, you know, keeping your mind open all the time. Um, uh, you know, I did my fellowship with, with Herb Kaufman, and everybody would look at a certain problem in a certain way, and he always came at it from a different direction. I learned, I really learned from him to keep your mind open. Don't right. use, you know, just because somebody in the textbook said something, don't assume it's true. 
try to take advantage of every little tiny bit of opportunity that comes your way. And also that nothing happens in a vacuum. This is all a big team effort. Uh, Steve Kleiss was one of the earliest people to join our team. So it was the three of us. We were working very hard together, but we realized we needed to assemble a team and we assembled a, a great team. Steve was critical um, as a PhD in uh, physiology and who had spent his entire career in studying corneal physiology. He was instrumental. So, I mean, it was without the right people who all got along together without communicating and, and taking advantage of these lucky little breaks that come our way. And the other thing it taught me is don't give up. You know, if you there were dark, dark, dark days when it looked uh, we were the laughing stock. As a matter of fact, um, when we got to the blind eye study, we had to document that they were completely blind in one eye. I mean, really blind, you know. Right. Uh, NLP. And, well, at worse than way worse than 2200, okay. like 400 or hand motion. Um, and that all refractions had been tried, that they had a Marcus gun. You know, we, you know, we had to document it. Right. So one of the first 10 blind eye patients was a young lady, and she's well-known, and she doesn't mind that her name is used, Carolyn Henry. And Carolyn had a, a complete retinal detachment in one eye, and she had a, um, oh, she had a brain tumor that, they said, when we finish resecting this brain tumor, that eye that you had the retinal detachment in, that you have a little bit of vision in, it'll be completely blind. So, you know, it was a pituitary adenoma that was very big. So she had it put in her head that she was going to be blind. So she went to three different institutions. Everybody documented she was blind. We, we did an ablation on her, and it happened to match what her true refractive error was. All the other blind eyes, we just said, okay, this one gets minus one, this one gets minus two, this one gets minus four. So this happened to match, just truly by serendipity. And about two months after we did her, she calls me up and says, I can see great out of this eye. I said, no, you can't. And she said, no, no, I can. My son hit me in the eye with a piece of birthday cake. And uh, now as I wiped away the cream, I can see. I said, no, come on in. She comes in, we tape up her good eye, and we test her, and she gets right down to 2020 uncorrected. And I had a wave of nausea pass over me because I thought people are going to think that I did this right. to, to get the scoop and to get ahead. And even with all these documents from Tulane and other universities that she was blind. So we call up the FDA, we notify them, we send in all the supporting evidence and also the evidence that she'd been declared blind, even somebody who had noted a Marcus Gunn pupil at Tulane. So it's a, it was a true case of hysterical blindness where two doctors, her retina surgeon and the brain surgeon, told her she'd be blind in that eye. So she just decided she's going to be blind. <laughs> she, was, she was blind. So when we wrote her up in, uh, in the AJO, a very, very famous, one of the most famous living ophthalmologists at the time wrote, a castigating editorial. Not only did he hate refractive surgery, it was personal uh, about what a dishonest person I was and, you know, the depths of depravity, etc. So here he is, one of the most famous living ophthalmologists at the time, an institution. 
And I was a 30-something female ophthalmologist that nobody had ever heard of down at a southern state university. And um, it really scarred my soul for a while. Um, I, you know, and I got teased about it and and people talked about it for years and years and years. And, um, you know, not long after he wrote that, his son uh, died of uh, malignant melanoma of the choroid that had metastasized and he had a, a terrible death. And his dad the man who wrote this died shortly thereafter. And I remember thinking, you know, he, he wrote what he felt, what he thought was right at the time. He thought refractive surgery was horrible. And it sure looked from the evidence like, like I had tried to do this um, just to get, you know, another first uh, in spite of all the supporting evidence we had sent in. But, you know, I just felt great sorrow for him that his, his last few years were, were so terrible. And it made me realize you really have to look at what the other guy sees. You have to really try to walk a mile in his moccasins. He saw it the way he saw it. Right. Right. Well, Marguerite, that's, that's very gracious. I know a lot of people, uh, when they're attacked like that, uh, when you know, you've done the right thing, it's really easy to hold a grudge for life. Um, but I, I, it's so refreshing to hear your perspective on this, uh, reflecting back, um, you know, when I when I think about Marguerite McDonald, I've never even heard of that uh, scathing editorial. So I can tell you that uh, whatever was written about you is old and cold. And um, all your friends who know you now um, see you as a hero, um, not just in refractive surgery, but a, a giant in our profession. And um, I cannot thank you enough for being willing to stick it out during the dark days because I get because of the work that you and others, as you mentioned, others have worked on this, because of the pioneering work that you all did, I get to live in an era when patients want to have uh, their vision fixed. I have a magic button, essentially, that I can press. And I tell patients, we live in the, in the weirdest time in all of human history where we have a button that we can press to cor- mag- almost magically correct your vision. And um, Marguerite, it's thanks to you persevering through those tough times and thanks to uh, patients like Miss Cassidy and others who were willing to sacrificially give of themselves. So Marguerite, with all of that, I just want to, uh, from the bottom of my heart, say thank you for being a pioneer, for sticking it out and giving us the gift of laser refractive surgery. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Gary. And it's been a huge honor and pleasure for me to be on your webcast. So just have to promise me to come please be a guest on my podcast. I will. Yes. For those of you who don't know, Marguerite has a fantastic podcast um, called Informed Consent, Getting to Yes. Um, if you've not, checked, if you've not uh, had a chance to check that out, you can find that uh, wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. Thank so, you, Gary. Marguerite, you are always welcome to come back. Um, and if you ever have a topic you'd like to talk about, you are always welcome to come back as a guest. So thanks again. We are fortunate to practice in a time when laser vision correction is so advanced, but that didn't happen overnight and it would not have happened at all without the passion, dedication, and bravery of Marguerite and her team. So many thanks to Marguerite and thanks for listening to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Next time we'll hear from some young ophthalmologists on what's got them traveling to Austin this September. Catch you then.
Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.